Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just get you to clip this to your I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. It's okay outside. For this episode, I thought I'd try something different. It's an interview that doubles as a kind of studio tour of my guest this week, (laughs) Asif Khan, who designs buildings, landscapes, exhibitions, and installations. Okay, you're just putting it there. Khan's practice is versatile and resists classification. His commissions, which often include experimental, groundbreaking pavilions, work really shrewdly with technology to develop new experiences and environments. A breakout project of his from 2014, for example, involved this billboard of three-dimensional pixels that projected a changing topography of faces. Even his larger and more conventional projects, like the renovation of Smithfield Market to house the new Museum of London, feels visionary and unorthodox in its anticipation of how it might be further altered and developed by future generations. Khan is interested in the depth and vastness of time, and his influences include the likes of Buckminster Fuller and Kenzo Tange, and the hybrid practices of Charles and Ray Eames and Kenya Hara. His work feels elastic, ambitious, and visionary in a way that's unconcerned with what might be considered good taste. Khan's approach to architecture really seems like it's entirely his own. We began our conversation in a corner of the warehouse that's been turned into the studio library, where he shared a few books with me that have left a mark on him and show how he thinks about design. So the library, we have about a thousand books now. They're not all here, uh, but I don't know, what is it, eight or nine hundred here. Um, very li- what you'll see is very little theory mm-hmm. here, because I, I have a um, pet hate for uh, architectural theory. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there are things about design theory here, but not um, not works by you know. There's a little bit space time in architecture is, is here, I think, and a, a couple mm. of others, but more things like Christopher Alexander. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think I think like what I've always tried to do is to um, have a really broad range of influences um, in my work. Um, it's really helpful to have a common frame of reference as well in the studio, however broad. Um, like there's a book here about you know knots, or there's a book here about palm trees, uh, or the Muji catalogue, um, or uh, you know books about um, spacesuits. It's, it's a it's a it's quite a mixture, um, but uh, it's a kind of work in progress. Yeah, process of learning really. You did a foundation course, right, where you're learning more about woodworking and yeah um, materials and. Uh, craft work in general. Could you tell me about that? So it was this small foundation course because I wanted to go to like St. Martin's or mm. something, but I was too late to apply. Mm. Uh, and this was like a course run by the Prince of Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and um, there were like 18 students uh, and the course had been running for like 10 years. And, I, and actually, I was really... Uh, uh, skeptical about the whole thing when I when I heard about it, I was like, "Oh God, that sounds really 
fuddy daddy and it's not like cool i want to go somewhere and do film and this and, and uh, it turned out to be the most incredible um and relevant mixture of of um um education that i could that i could have it's i think it's still like um that year that i was there if i could freeze that and give that to every architect student every design student mm -hmm. you know as a as a kind of background for their lives i would do it it's mm -hmm. just amazing and we learn about of course all the, like the history and the and you know classical orders and all the things you'd expect but also learned to carve with wood uh, um, stone carving metal work um, the first week we made a yurt you know a week later we made a geodesic dome out of bamboo Keith Critchlow taught us who was a you know one of the protégés of Buckminster Fuller yes he, you know he was in his like 70s when he taught us and I think he's, he's, he's passed away now but he was like a you know I guess having that syn um, synthesis of like new age thinking uh -huh. uh, and like structural engineering and yeah. all, that, all of the stuff that you'd hear about from the whole earth catalogue yes it felt that there were the glowing embers of that still in that school if you knew where to look mm -hmm. and we learned fine art and did all the oil painting and all of that stuff and you know it was, mm -hmm. it was just amazing mm -hmm. I mean just for listeners who might not be familiar with some of these references Critchlow is was into this idea of sacred geometry. So you mentioned yes. like new age thinking and you, yeah. you talk about the whole earth catalog. Yeah. Again, this, this project that came out of California, I think in the 1960s. We have, we have a, um, one of the last issues. Uh, Stuart Brand mm -hmm. uh, was the publisher and it's a sort of pre-internet internet. internet. Mm -hmm. the, and the idea was to sort of connect together. They called it like a, a tool they called the book a tool, basically, mm -hmm. and the idea was to connect together um, thinking and suppliers um, and uh, sort of designs for a, for a potential future mm -hmm. that would be better. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> on the front was a was a was a, an image of the Earth. The pages were like um, the yellow pages, if, if, you know, which are like really cheap paper stock. It's a catalogue, mm -hmm. but you'd you'd leaf through and you'd find. On one page, there'd be like um, instructions on building guitars, mm -hmm. and the next page would be instructions for building your own shelter, mm -hmm. and you know the next page might be something about um, uh, meditation mm -hmm. uh, or about how to do agriculture, like the early early kind of aspects of the kind of organic movement, or mm -hmm. um, you know, it was all there. Every, like it was, I think I don't know how much they published it, but it was enormously influential yeah um, I mean there's a real sense of restlessness and unbridled optimism and mm. utopianism yeah that I also feel when I see a lot of the work you've made as a designer <laughs> and I say designer yeah, sure. yeah. because it's it's more than architecture in a way yeah. it's this expanded idea of what architecture is but so why after this foundation course did you decide to go into architecture I think I didn't decide to go into architecture but I decided that I wanted to continue that to the educational pathway. Mm. And I felt the Bartlett for me at the time was just like presented like this synergetic thinking opportunity. It's another Buckminster Fuller term. That is a Buckminster, <laughs> intentional Buckminster Fuller term. Uh, yeah, I just felt, I felt 
I needed to be um, in a really creative environment mm. where anything goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was what, surprisingly, the Princess Foundation gave me. Yeah. There was no pressure to become, to become an architect, uh, uh, really. And in fact, I remember when I left, they, uh, my tutors said, we really think you should go into film. Hmm. Um, and it was just, I, I was like, like wow, I, never, I hadn't really thought of that. And they said, there's something about the way you are um, like editing your, the, so like if I, was, if I was painting or drawing, mm -hmm. I'd like focus in on like, micro details mm -hmm. they were more about the kind of atmosphere of a moment like trying to express some sort of uh micro world mm -hmm. with an atmosphere mm -hmm. rather than to um to objectively represent something mm -hmm. and, um, i mean i'm just remembering now slides you've shown in other presentations about work you've done with students while you're teaching where maybe this isn't work by you but work that's kind of representative of the kind of interest that you're explaining here you'll take like a a loaf of sourdough bread and start to populate a section of it with little figures <laughs> <laughs> or like put a droplet of water on a tiny human figure or you, you're starting to understand the microscopic world mm. uh, as a space of imagination yeah when you talk about cinema um, i immediately think of designers like charles and ray eames mm. and their interest in these vast extremes of of our capacity to think and imagine from the cosmic right down to the microscopic and thinking of powers of 10 yeah. their, their film in particular but i think before we before we go down this it's one of my favorite this route of influences yeah. i think you mentioned that for you um, coming out of this foundation course in thinking about architecture as a discipline where anything could happen or you could do anything mm. um, as as set up or established by the kind of self-initiative or do-it-yourself attitude that the whole earth catalog embodied. Mm. I really feel like the studio itself that we're in right now exemplifies that in a way. And I want to just wander around it with you for a bit and give listeners an idea of where exactly we are right now. Okay. So we're in like an old, it looks like an old warehouse. Yeah, this used to be a carpet warehouse. Uh, we're in East London. Uh, just near Broadway Market, an area that's gone through rapid change, um, and some areas you could say are, are like have become gentrified. But a lot of the original residents are still here. Opposite our studio is a big housing estate, uh, Peabody Housing Estate. On the left of our studio is a um, is a kind of MMA gym, mm. <laughs> for, for, uh, focusing on jujitsu. Uh, on the right is a publisher of children's books. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's kind of quite a, a mix. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a coffee roastery at the end. It's a classic kind of um, gentrification symbol. Right, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Australian coffee, coffee <laughs> brand. But, um, but it's really interesting. Like it's um, in, any day in front of the studio, the people sitting on our, on our, um, on our wall will be kids getting ready for their jiu-jitsu class or old men, Bangladeshi men kind of, uh, taking a rest as they walk to get the groceries and mm. it's, it's always uh, different here mm. and and that was quite um, I think for me like quite a conscious decision of like the studio should be in a place that feels real mm -hmm. and it's inspiring in that respect um, and uh, that life flows around it and inside it should also feel 
like I think like true to the nature of um, the process um, un and, and sort of unedited mm -hmm. uh, and true to the nature of the way I think and I, I kind of want to help other people think uh -huh. um, well, let's talk more about that so we're we're standing close to the well I guess we'll go up to the entrance yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a bank of large windows and a, like a frosted glass door and we're looking down to the end of the warehouse and we can see uh, between us and the end there are shelves of models uh, there are large one-to-one -one scale mock-ups of strange objects uh, <laughs> there are giant prints of past work you've done um, and then at the end um, there are people at a long table bathed in top light and shaded by these strange canvas canopies that are kind of drooping above them. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and looking down, all of these masking tape lines uh -huh. are also mock-ups of all manner of things from uh, room, the shape of rooms that we're designing mm -hmm. or uh, the pattern on the floor, hmm. tiling layouts, staircase, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, staircase treads. Oh, this is so interesting. I can see a tracing of one project in particular, the Hyundai Pavilion. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> at the. Um, this is the. Oh God, the, Winter, the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. The Pyeongchang yeah. Winter Olympics Pavilion, you made. Yeah, so this is this is a ghost of a project that's inscribed on the floor in masking tape. Yeah, this is. I'll, I can take you through them actually. Sure. So this one here is the uh, the monument to workers. This is the floor, the, the the layout of the monument to workers that we just did at the Dubai Expo. These kind of zigzagging lines. Mm. This bit here, if we turn orientation, is um, a bit of the staircase, the main staircase from the Museum of London, mm. which we were testing in different sizes. So mm. uh, this is like a four or five meter width check. Mm. Um, some of these lines are actually um, a kind of expansion of the Hyundai project um, into a larger um, public space work that we did. Um, <laughs> what else do we have here? Uh, but, it, but basically, what it's saying is this is a this is a place where things are tested at yeah. one to one. Yeah, that was so. That's uh, that was like a really important learning from the Princess Foundations. Like basically. Um, you've got to um, make things. You've mm -hmm. got to feel them out. You've got to understand uh, things at true scale. And and I think we've always, uh, I've strived to, and in the studio we've always tried to, um, um, like balance the work that we're doing on the computer, and on sketches, and in renders, and whatever we're doing there, with um, physical full-scale um, prototypes of things mm. and um, it's not that we're we're not really making final like final outputs mm -hmm. we're using the made object as a kind of as a as a, uh, a living sketch mm -hmm. so this this is a piece of staircase uh, it's like uh, it's a yeah it's like a, it's a mock-up of a timber stair turning a corner it's a particular junction in the Museum of London hmm. that is really tricky to resolve. Huh. And you can stare at a computer screen for days and you'll never figure it out. So um, this was made by, by Izzy, who's our head of making here. 
Um, and she was trying to figure out uh, different ways, of essentially, of supporting the staircase mm -hmm. and how you deal with this junction where, like, six or eight, six or seven pieces of timber all come in together and have to resolve in one place. And you know, you know, how do you, uh, how do you um, sort of make them? And it's the kind of the, this this question, which is like the, the perennial question of of like architects or designers for hundreds of years, is like junction. How do they, <laughs> how do materials uh -huh, meet? Uh -huh. And when they meet, what does it say? Mm. You know, like that's the. So we do a lot of that, um, and we'll bring the client to look at it. We'll bring engineers to look at it. And say, hey, we figured it out actually, mm. um, and they'll come say, oh, you know, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, we proved it. It is possible. Mm. So um, uh, it's that it's really useful for that for that sense. It allows to speak the same language. Uh huh. It seems like such an obvious way of solving a detailed problem, but at the same time very expensive and laborious and time consuming but i mean would you agree or like how do you have how can you afford to have a head of making in the practice who's constantly mocking up one-to-one -one, um scale models of, of details like this well it's it's um yeah it's 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 not it's challenging to yeah how to say like it's an expensive thing to do mm -hmm. that, and the burden of that cost is on us mm. but it's always been there's always been a feeling that the um, uh, for me that the, you can't really um, rely on the computer to tell you the truth mm. uh, and and you can't rely on the translation from the computer or, or drawing board even to the uh, site the site or to the, to the workshop to the um, uh, to the to the final output mm. to match what you had in your mind at the beginning mm -hmm. so the, the what this thing does is it ensures that what we say it is is what it is mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. so uh, I, I see like the process of designing as a kind of pledge that you make with a site or a client or a community and um, Everything that we say at the beginning in that pledge, I want to uh, um, truthfully deliver upon. And I've just found by, by, by building as part of the design process, as, uh, you know, um, uh, we're able to get, although you know, architecture is not a direct art form, it, mm -hmm. requires so, it requires so many hands, so much reinterpretation and, 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 and kind of deviations from where you start off. Mm. By doing this, it gets you a little bit closer to the sort of immediacy that an artist has on their art form, you know, mm. on the canvas. Mm. Mm. Uh, we're able to jump forward a few steps, have the immediacy here, and then use that as the as the um, the mock-up. And I think you see it in um, you know, if we were to go to to India, Pakistan, uh, or East Africa, you know, where my mum is from, you'd You'd see people doing that normally as part of like a process. Mm -hmm. The contractor would build you. Hey, is this how you want the wall to be done? Mm. Um, but but here it tends to be done on in paperwork, and I think that's more that's a very challenging and a, like arcane way of, of translating mm -hmm. what should be touched and felt and seen. You know? It's so interesting your allegiance to reality and material honesty, given a lot of the work you do is to me, almost unreal. It's so imaginative and so experimental. I think it's helpful just to read a description 
of an archive of your work mm -hmm. to, to give a sense of what I mean when I say that. So you've designed a building that can be played like a musical instrument. You've designed a screen that is made of three-dimensional pixels, which project a changing topography of faces. Um, you've made a project that, that uh, projects a circadian cycle on a cylindrical screen to sound works by the composer Brian Eno. A towering gateway made of a complex lattice of black scaffolding. I'm just gonna keep going. Uh, a building made of the darkest, or the, the most light absorbent material in the world with a 3D star field mapped onto its facade. And inside that building, you've designed a white hydrophobic interior that animates the movement of water droplets. I mean, the list just goes on and on. All this stuff, I think, all built I, here, by the way. <laughs> but I couldn't have imagined in my wildest dreams, and yet you have the physical artifacts of their making in the studio. I think that's really interesting, um, <laughs> that this kind of radical imagination starts with a very concrete physical process of mocking it up. The amazing thing to, 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 rem to, the, to, to, to draw from that is, is um, we've proven it's possible. <laughs> like, that you, that uh, you can imagine pretty much anything you want and, and it will be possible to make it if you go through a process of testing and prototyping that you're in control of. Mm. Mm. Oh my God, there's so much here. I mean, it's overwhelming. We could, spend, we could spend a full day just in this bank of shelving with all kinds of models and prototypes on them. Um, but I, I want to actually explore the rest of the studio yeah, with you. <laughs> so we're passing the shelves, passing the library. This and is sort of a dry, an area for, for like dry model making mm -hmm. um, with card and paper. Um, every every like instrument that you'd want. There's like twenty different tweezers. Oh my god! In these drawers. <laughs> this is this is. This is sort of my heaven. <laughs> wow, so what was heaven that? Heaven on earth. This is for picking up micro, uh, microscopic bits of model okay. and placing them. Um, I mean, this is like an extension of like when I was a kid uh -huh. um, doing airfix models or, or um, uh, this little games workshop, Warhammer type things. Mm -hmm. It was all about the miniature and this, all of these tools are about sort of the miniature world. Mm -hmm. um, and, this, um, if we go over here, this is like this long kind of uh, stick table is where we work. We, we had this original idea that we should have no screens. Everyone should work on laptops. It's like right from the beginning mm -hmm. so that people can see each other. Right. And we're talking quite loudly in front of about Sorry. 10 or 15 people working hard at this long table, studiously avoiding our gaze. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the idea was... That, always and we had the same in our in our old office was that the what we also have done here is like this this half of the studio uh has like a kind of alter ego on the other side mm -hmm. okay um, so we're going through yeah. a corridor now uh so in the middle is a meeting room which is like right and there's a polycarbonate roof with a steel truss that's holding it up and just a big stick frame table and a giant uh, flat screen TV in the middle of it. So here we do pinups uh, and um, and meetings and so on. Um, when we when we work in a competition, this is like the nerve center of that competition. Mm, <laughs> so like, right. 
you remember this film Beautiful Mind and he's like yeah, writing yeah, yeah. it's like that's what it looks like in here. <laughs> uh, this is quite nice like, like, so this is like a cabinet of curiosities now yeah like uh, things that things that like we've made that like want to just keep around you know just we just this is you're holding a like tensile metal and fishing wire structure um we actually ended up making an electric guitar huh. using that structure wow. a fender um uh you've got like a bit of this uh vanta black different samples that's the first mm. sample they gave me uh back i mean like years ago when i visited the factory wow um so vanta black is is that dark material we were talking about earlier, the, the most light absorbent material. These are casts of uh, the shape of your hand. Hmm. Uh, so we were working a project um, to, to, to think about like a, um, what would be the perfect mirror. Uh, and this idea that a mirror could be held in the palm of your hand just fits into all of the kind of oh my God. The space. So it looks like um, Th these are flat, almost like flat white stones laid out on a glass shelf and you just put one on your hand and um, it looks like a puddle of something being cupped in your hand and it's formed precisely to the contour of your palm. Let's just keep going. I see behind you a climbing wall in another room. Okay. So this space is our kind of, uh, let's say, fabrication space. Um, Izzy is sitting over there who's our head of making. Hi, Izzy. Uh, who's um, yeah, a very talented maker across many different um, mediums and scales. And, and we're just, just to kind of paint the picture, we're standing inside of half of the room, which is closed off by a black velvet curtain. And the walls are faceted timber with a bunch of climbing um, holds on them. Yeah, well, this is a, <laughs> this is a lockdown project. Uh, well, this space has always been uh, um, for making and when um, we had half of the studio space and when this became available we, we kind of asked to take this on as well because the mm -hmm. projects got uh, they needed more full-size mock-ups like bits of auditorium seating for Museum of London or here what's in front of us is a bit of a bridge that we're doing uh, in Canada water right so there's a giant timber mock-up right in front of us it looks like a giant balustrade we can, yeah we can climb on it okay cool uh, so we're standing on a <laughs> on this bridge, and we're really interested in you know what it feels like uh -huh. to be here. So we have things like this, mm -hmm. this, this this bridge, and we'll we'll we, we, you know, we test it full size for lots of different lots of different things, the feel uh, and the proportions and so on. But also around it, this climbing wall, this lockdown project. The idea was. Uh, all the climbing centers were closed and my kids were really into climbing and we huh. said okay well, let's just build a small climbing wall so they can do some climbing during lockdown uh -huh. and so start I had an idea like three meters wide and we'll just put some holes in it and it got uh, bigger and bigger and then you know because I knew that lots of people in the studio climb mm. we just said you know let's just make it the whole of the wall it's and then the whole room and even onto walls. the ceiling as well <laughs> yeah. and it became it became this huge project actually and it allowed um, us to get our teeth into something and Izzy uh, you know got this machine which is this, this, this big CNC machine and it really was a chance to, to um, uh, create a, a, re a new sort of recreational space in the studio that everyone can use mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and you know climbing 
is such a um, strangely such a perfect uh, sport or activity for for designers and architects who mm-hmm. um, you spend your day thinking spatially in your head, but like climbing allows you to think spatially. Um, ex- you know, to externalize those that, that those spatial thoughts, mm-hmm. um, and it's a very mindful activity um, as well as being like really hard. <laughs> uh-huh. It's amazing to see. What it also is reminding me of, in a way, is how the culture of work has changed so fundamentally, mm. and how typically, maybe in larger companies, and even maybe originally in tech companies, spaces of entertainment, recreation, and leisure start to make their way into the office, and they they are um, enjoyable amenities, but they also extend the amount of time that employees stay in the office itself. Mm. So there's a difficult question here about uh, what work means in this environment. And I imagine like with all these incredible mock-ups and all the iteration that goes on and all the study and testing, that um, this is not your typical quote-unquote nine-to-five job. And just tell me your thoughts on that, on working culture in general. And just to be clear, I mean, yeah. most architecture practices are architecture as a discipline is notorious for um, long hours. You know what I'd say. You know what I'd say. So here, here, here my reflection on it is that um, architecture is one of the most difficult um, tasks that, that 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 you can put your mind to. It's the most challenging art form it's always been said to be it Mm. it really is and Mm. to um, it requires to do it well uh, it requires um, an enormous amount of time and effort because it's made it it requires a consideration of uh, materials cost manufacturing three-dimensional space junctions between maybe a million elements to be considered, right? Mm, mm. So the, the kind of, um, uh, and the, the kind of coordination of so many experts and the information they produce, and all that information to be held by two or three people or five people on the architect side. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're, apart from like a, um, you know, governance or something <laughs> running a country uh, I don't think there's there, there are there are many um, uh, situations one would find yourself in where where like so much information had to be filtered through a very small period of a number of people mm-hmm. to make a decision right and mm-hmm. I think that um, I think people underestimate how difficult architecture is to do well um, so is uh, what could happen is if if people paid a lot of money for you to do architecture well Mm. but this doesn't happen it may have happened at some point in time we have this idea of it and it may happen sometime in the future it doesn't happen now so what that means is you can't put you can't have a huge team doing that stuff uh, uh, and therefore reduce a burden on people Mm. if you want to do this thing well you just have to extend how much time you work and that's that's 
there is no getting out of it. Mm. You can't rely if you rely on the computer too much to re reduce that burden. Uh, uh, the work gets worse. Uh, if you rely on the contractor too much to reduce that burden, the work gets worse. Um, if you if you don't make these prototypes, uh, good luck on what turns up on site. You know, because someone mm -hmm. else is going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I think it's, it's it's the challenge is it's it's this struggle between um, is is architecture worth it? Is our built environment worth it? Um, um, if we don't do the the work and produce things of quality. Um, will someone else do it? Um, who, who's responsible for that, for the bit of right? Who's responsible for what gets out there? Um, I think the architects in the world who, who, who are um, striving to, to um, take that responsibility, um, it's, it's a heavy burden and the burden goes on them and their teams. Uh, and the result is cities are better places, uh, but it's a, it's a, um, it's enormous burden. Mm. Similarly, like a surgeon isn't a nine to five job, mm. but they save lives, you know? Um, and I think a, um, um, you know, a, an operation happening in the middle of the night is normal, matter of course, for them. And they're not mm. remunerated very well for it, um, uh, in, you know, in the UK at least. So it's a really, it's a really challenging uh, situation, I think. But this, right this moment in time, uh, um, we are thinking more about uh, how to make this process more efficient, mm. and we're thinking more about what we can learn from other industries and how um, how we can, you know, give more rest to people. So, for example, um, everyone has a Friday afternoon they can take, or everyone has an afternoon they can take off uh, one day a month as a um, they can choose where it is. Mm. Like, I want to take a Friday afternoon off. You can do it. Mm. It's included. Mm. Um, and um, we have in the summer like more flexible working hours so some people do will come in earlier and leave earlier because mm. uh, the light's better and so mm -hmm. on um, and um, and we've, we, we're really open now to, to taking people's perspectives of how to um, get the most out of themselves uh, but without compromising their kind of their health or something so um, these are conversations that weren't happening before, and mm. I think these are in any in any practices, and I think these are these are things that we're learning about uh, today. It's just to yeah. just to kind of um, I'm a signpost. We've left <laughs> we've left the climbing wall area. We're on the other side of the the black curtain, and we're in what looks like a, another fabrication space. There's a big model behind us of what I think is the project in Kazakhstan? Yeah, this is the Cellini, uh, sorry, yeah, Cellini Center for, for Contemporary Culture in Kazakhstan. And what right now we're kind of veering, we're segueing into a different conversation, which is about the practice structure mm -hmm. and how, um, as you were saying, um, it's less hierarchical or more horizontally organized. Could you talk more about that? Yeah. I think it's I think it's interesting with practices like this that um, do have quite a strong identity and do have one person's name uh, on the front of the door. What it means to start to work in a non-hierarchical way and how other people's identities or attitudes start to feed into the, to the practice. Yeah, I'm, I'm conscious of uh, this will be my perspective <laughs> as the leader of the studio. Uh -huh. um, 
and then the leader saying it's non-hierarchical uh, <laughs> is, it sounds like a, a paradox so but um what i think what i'm trying to say is uh we've never put a limit on uh what someone's potential is so if if Okay, in, in architecture we have these classifications like part one, part two, part three, IBA experience plus five years, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care what someone's qualifications are. If they're amazing and they're part one, they could be having more responsibility and delivering a bigger project than a registered architect with five years experience. Would they be making the same amount of money? Though? Yeah, yeah, they'd be making they'd be making more than the than the qualified architect mm. if they had some incredible aptitude and um, ability to um, um, speak to people, ability to, to um, uh, explain ideas, uh, explain how to build things. Mm. And we've done that in the past. So we've done, you know, so our project lead for the uh, um, Expo 2020 was a part two who was responsible for delivering six kilometers of um, public realm. <laughs> in a country that he, he had never been to but had <laughs> but had had kind of gained the respect of the client and contractors mm. and the other architects we were collaborating we were collaborating with with um acom and fosters and mm. uh, and um asgg and grimshaw mm. and uh, hopkins this one guy brought something totally unexpected to the mix mm. what was his name I don't remember. Oh, right. <laughs> no, I'm, kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> I'm kidding. It's, it's, uh, his name is Masa, uh, Masayuki Sado. So he's, he's a Japanese uh, guy. But it's an example. And Masa oh. now is in Australia. He's, he's going to try and set up a kind of a, uh, we called it like a Asia-Pacific zone mm-hmm. for us, so like a, a studio. But, um, you know, he's like 30 years old and he, oh. was, he was like, running this enormous project uh-huh. uh, so i i don't i yeah. don't really um uh believe in all these qualifications I've, at the same time i've just met um young people who are capable of enormous things and, mm. and very experienced people who are capable of nothing that's so refreshing to hear um and especially in the context of how i think rigidly controlled the title of architect is yeah. in this country yeah where the ARB, the Architects Registration Board, routinely set out to find people who call themselves architects but aren't on the register and then kind of publicly shame them. And uh, yeah, I'm not on the register. Right, so yeah. that's interesting. I never took my part three. So tell me about that decision not to do the part three, which for listeners outside of the UK is the kind of final stage of licensure before you can call yourself an architect. Why, why not do that? Um... I mean, at the beginning, uh, I I wanted to, but just didn't have time to. I, I finished my, I finished, I went to the Bartlett first, then the AA. When I finished the AA, I went straight into a, a project, actually, in like uh, this West Beach Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, which I worked for my tutor, for my ex-tutor, for like a bit of time, like a few months. And then I this project kind of came online. I, I did it. I wanted to uh, find time to do part three and I never could fit it in. The studio kind of got busier um, and then we started employing uh, architects um, and at that point 
it doesn't matter so much because you if you have you know five architects on your team or ten architects on your team you are essentially an architecture studio right? mm -hmm. I think you need a, a minimum of uh, there is a minimum number that's for those of you who want to set up practice <laughs> honestly, who are listening to call yourself an architect I think you need three uh -huh. something like that uh -huh. but um, yeah it just wasn't important and I kind of um, at the same time there's something uh, I've always liked about not being a, about people not calling you something because once you get called something uh, you get categorized in a certain way it sort of excludes other aspects of your mm. of your self this is interesting so this is something we started talking about before recording but the way in which it's very difficult actually to pigeonhole your practice or you as a designer because your background is in architecture but the work you do bridges everything from product design to exhibition design to conceptual furniture to large-scale master planning. Um, there's this one project which is a favorite of mine where you infused soap bubbles with helium to create um, a canopy of clouds as a shade device. So I mean like it, it ranges so dramatically um, that in a way there is no title, mm. which is its own kind of problem. Or what do you, uh, another way of putting that is what do you call yourself? A designer? Not really. I also don't. <laughs> it's really difficult. I mean, um, I, I think what tends to happen is other people will call you, uh, will call you a designer or an architect or an artist. And when you try to call yourself something, they'll tell you, no, you're not, you're this. Mm. I've done a lecture and uh, I remember doing a lecture and someone afterwards came and told me, oh, I understand now you're an artist. Mm -hmm. That's what you are. Mm -hmm. And uh, at once it feels like you want to argue with them. And at the other, at the other time it feels that you are um, glad that someone has spotted uh, some aspect of yourself mm -hmm. that, that, um, um, that you'd like to be out there. Mm difficulty of not being able to place you <laughs> and it's not that I necessarily want to or I want to find some kind of title but um, I think what I'm interested in is is um, how that influences the way you or your practice is received by a public mm. and I get the feeling that Asif Khan is more recognizable in a way abroad than the practices in the UK. I might be wrong about that, but I know a lot of the work is more international. It's more, uh, a lot of the more significant projects, um, aside from the Museum of London, are in places further afield, whether it's um, in Dubai or Kazakhstan um, or, or elsewhere. And so also I think myself having spent seven years in London and having become steeped in a certain kind of 
culture of architecture, um, to me, your practice is an outlier in a really exciting way. And I, I want to understand what your relationship is to architecture in the UK and architecture in London specifically, how you situate yourself in the context of, of London architecture practices, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. It's, it's one of, it's, it, it, it's a, I, I, I guess, um, well, like there's a, maybe there's a more precise way of asking it. Yeah, um, I, but I understand what you're getting at. But I think it's I wanna, like, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I want to. I want to try and articulate it in a way that um, no, it's it's people could understand. Who are you? <laughs> it's not even who are. <laughs> but it's like yeah. I think that yeah. to me, the the kind of standard approach to architecture, the accepted approach to yeah. architecture, especially in the UK, is has to do with. Um, drawing on influences within the discipline. And so there's this, I think there's this real interest in historic precedent in architecture that's about architecture, yeah. that sees itself in this lineage of other architects and is slowly evolving, but in what to me is actually quite a conservative way. I mean, even now still in London, architects uh, fetishize bricks. <laughs> And they fetishize, uh, rightly so, but still arches. arches um, there's a formal language that I think uh, we've, we've developed a consensus about as being in good taste. Yeah. I think firstly, the idea that you would look upon um, other people's work as a reference point for your own, um, and particularly if you're of your peers, or like let's say, the, the, to me that feels like a, a very strange way of, of, of working. Um, it's okay to look, uh, let's say, into the deep past or um, uh, kind of the a global perspective, but it felt like the, the, the to, uh, to I, I, know, I, I really love this question. I just want to kind of, get, I will get to, I'll get, to, yeah. I need to tease it out, but it's like, um, Like, okay, my my uh, my dad is from Pakistan. He's an immigrant. You know, came to the UK early sixties, um, uh, and got himself an education and so on. And really, in one generation, transformed himself from a kind of farm living in tiny farm and looking after two cows to getting a history and politics degree and sort of expanding his mind to the entire world, right? My mother, uh, East African Indian, uh, um, also went through the same process, small town, Iringa in East Africa, came to uh, the UK and went to university and just um, transformed, I think, her perspectives from life. They both became social workers, very modest people. They work with pe people who work with people. Uh, but they had global perspectives um, and they had it from their history, um, from the challenging backgrounds they had, you know, um, and I'm sure all, many families have challenges, uh, but also um, uh, there was a moment in time, I think, uh, in the 60s and 70s, and I talked earlier about the whole Earth Catalogue, where things felt more connected, even though we're more connected now. Mm. Um, and I think that really rubbed off on me. Uh, so. 
I've never seen like London uh, as as the size of the pond. Mm -hmm. It's always felt like, you know, and I had relatives who lived in Canada or Pakistan or India or um, or uh, East Africa or, or elsewhere that you'd always hear stories about and whatever. So it, there was always this idea that um, um, you can have a multi-layered, multi-dimensional identity. Mm. I have no problem with that. I'm, I'm a, um, I use many operating systems. <laughs> it's fine. Like I can live with that. Um, and oh yeah, go on. Yeah. I'm okay. Are you Thanks. sure? Yeah, yeah. Like a sandwich or something? I'm good. Thank you. Sir. Oh, the dal is really good. Take a dal. Yeah. Yeah, dal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dal, have dal. Okay, I'll have yeah. a dal. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so uh, I can't, I mean, just, uh, I, I, I think I, I practice in a way that's, that I'm, that is, all it is is who I am, right? That's all I can give. That's all I can give that's different. Um, and that's all of, that's the only thing that makes sense to me is, to, is for, it to, for me to just give myself into it. Um, and, and therefore it's inevitable that the way, I, the way I think about the world is in some way reflected in the way I think about the practice and where I practice. Um, so when opportunities come up in, you know, on the other side of the world, I'm fascinated by the possibilities of that rather than being scared by the risk of it. Mm. Um, uh, when, when, those, when those opportunities come up, I, I think about um, uh, what I can bring uh, with my history um, to, to connect dots together uh, um, for those communities that haven't necessarily been connected before because of the perspective of being an outsider. Mm. Um, a perspective that you can't give always as an insider in London, right? You just tend to repeat here, right? But it's, so I love, I love being an outsider, um, saying it affords you a perspective uh, and it affords you a chance to, to, to reflect on yourself and your relationship with, with the world around you, but also to have, a, um, to have the people you're working with or for reflect on themselves. So everyone is in a process of, of kind of self-transformation. Mm. And that's why I like those, those kind of fresh um, spaces to work within. Mm. Um, because we all uh, gain something intellectually from the process. And I think through that architecture gains something by being moved on like a step. Um, I, I, I don't feel it's worth doing something. Uh, I've, I've always felt that there's like... There's a million good architects in the world. And as you know, any project can be done and the result will be fine and it's okay. Mm. Um, and there's almost no point in competing with those people because it doesn't matter which one you use. It's all going to be fine, okay? <laughs> um, it's interesting though because, again, before we started recording, you mentioned going into a restaurant down the street and seeing uh, the folks from Caruso Sinjin across the way, and you were in direct competition with them for the Museum of London project. And I think when you say those people were probably talking about practices like that, which are uh, maybe less so now, but of working in, in the context of London mm -hmm. and then uh, continental Europe as well. Um, and there's a whole tradition that practices like that draw on, which are understandably, for obvious reasons, very rooted in the history of 
European architecture. Hmm. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we also, uh, uh, it's inevitable to, to look at those things. I have huge respect for, for, for what they do, actually. Um, but London is, inc- is an incredibly diverse place. Um, and it's full of enormous wealth of, of talent in the kind of creative fields of which there are many, many fields, right? So you can't help but uh, be inspired by this kind of energy that happens here. But I've found it, uh, the way that um, architecture is practiced here, I feel is, um, it comes with sort of inbuilt restrictions that I don't really understand um, how they came about. And we can argue like, okay, it came about because of the developer or the, the, you know, because of planning or because of, you know, capitalism or whatever. Mm. Um, but, um, but whatever it is, and you, and you mentioned it, they are, they're there and, it's, and, and it, the conversation is, is, is really small and it's, it's really conservative. Um, so even if you just got a bit of inspiration from the other creative people in London, I think the city would look like a more uh, creative place, a place that inspired people, you know, it changes the way people think and feel and whatever. Um, and that's, I think, that's, uh, I feel, incumbent on, on architects to try and, you know, catch those flavors in their, in their work, but maybe they feel they can't, but they, mm. they, they, I, th- I think they can, you know, if they, if, they tr- if they look deeper. In a way, I feel like architecture, as much as it's judged by the public, is judged by uh, its peers. <laughs> and I feel like there's, a, uh, there's almost a, this understanding of what's good and what's proper and what's acceptable. Um, we were talking about before in terms of material, in terms of formal and historical reference that you're just totally obliterating or have absolutely no, you're not concerned with. You might still reference these things, but at the same time, you'd be as eager to collaborate with uh, material scientists and technologists and historians and artists um, quite instinctively and freely. I just want to list off a few influences of yours who fall into this category or situation Mm -hmm. of being somehow peripheral to or operating at the fringes of architecture. Um, So Kenzo Tang, uh, Vladimir Shukov, uh, Joseph Paxton. Mm -hmm. I mean, to that point, I've heard you talk about Paxton and how in your work, you have this test that you do. You hold your work up against um, to see whether or not it, it passes or not. And it's called, the, it's called the Paxton test. What exactly is the Paxton, Paxton test? What does that mean? If you look at the work of Paxton, so essentially who made glass houses, uh, which then transformed what I believe like 20th century uh, appearance of our cities is based on this structure that he made, glass and glass and iron, I think it's a reason, it's a blueprint for every glass and steel building we have now and really transform the way cities look. Uh, concept of inside and outside transparency and so on. Um, uh, Shukov, who built kind of diagrid uh, tensile lattice structures, like if you see the Shukov Tower in Moscow, 
it looks like something that we couldn't even build today. It looks like something from a science fiction movie. It's, mm. it's, in, it's insane. Um, uh, Kenzo Tange, I mean, you mentioned, uh, I think he's the greatest Japanese architect, uh, completely transformed post-war Japan um, by, you know, mixing sort of modernity and, and, and sort of idea of metabolism. And, you know, he uh, transformed the nation, really, through his work. Um, and, uh, you know, Ken Yohara I'd also bring to it, who's a designer, but he... Um, this is the director of Muji, is that right? Well, uh, Ken, Kenya is the uh, art director of Muji, um, the Japanese um, home goods brand. Uh, but he's also like a philosopher and, and kind of a, um, a writer, you know, who's... and a curator <laughs> and a graphic designer. Mm-hmm who's kind of expanded, uh, I think, the way think people think about the human senses and um, about um, the relationship between kind of material culture and aesthetics and, and sort of, um, uh, you know, Japanese-ness and all of this sort of stuff he's explored through his work. But um, I think all of those people have um, uh, be- believe in a bigger question, basically. And and the, and and it uh, and they and they believe that the bigger question can be uh, explored or answered um, through the work, even if the work is is prosaic and, and sort of mundane and and, and, and sort of bread and butter. Uh, why not um, uh, explore the bigger question in in everything you do? You know, you, the, 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 I think part of the problem is that the that the question of architecture seems to be about style. Um, or it seems to be about economy of means, or it seems to be about um, about planning restrictions, um, and 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 rather, it should be about where are human beings going and what kind of species do we want to be? Like it's it's the fundamental thing, right? Like it's um, uh, the ant is made by the ant hill in some way, right? What is this ant colony? What is it doing? What is this big picture? Eva Franchi Gilbert had a, a very incisive way, I think, of summing up your work uh, in the context of the presentation you gave at the AA in, in 2019, where she said something along the lines of, architecture tends to enjoy defining itself in relationship to its own terms, whereas it seems like it's forgotten the relationship between architecture and its subject, which is the spaces between, which is surface, which is volume and texture, and the viewer and the user, um, and the, the, this whole kind of universe of experience um, on those terms. And I mean, it seems like what she was getting at is exactly what you're describing, that. Um, it's a concern with design on a much bigger plane to do with human experience, <laughs> where we are now and where we're going, <laughs> how we feel, <laughs> um, and how we act and how we behave together. I mean, there are so, the interest is so fundamental but so broad that I think it's often hard to kind of um, articulate it or wrap our head around it. But when we have these historical figures in mind, like uh, Paxton, like 
Charles and Ray Eames, like Buckminster Fuller, like uh, Kenzo Tenge. Then we start to remember, I think, what it is that we've forgotten mm. about what architecture was or could be. And so that's why I think in, in your work and in even just having walked around the studio, there's this sense that we're recovering some of that optimism and that understanding of architecture as being this incredibly expanded field of practice. I may not phrase this in the right way, but it's helpful sometimes to think that architecture doesn't exist. It's not, it's, it's made up, right? All of this canon and all of the, the, all of this writing and all of the examples and all of the, the kind of schooling and everything, like, let's just imagine it, it is all just made up by people, right? It's a religion of some sort. And you're operating within that religion. Uh, but, but before that religion, there was another religion or there was another way of thinking about things, right? And so it's, it's about stepping outside of that world and seeing what else is, is possible, right? You know, uh, maybe there's uh, uh, multiple gods, right? <laughs> you know? Maybe we just worship trees. Uh, maybe, um, maybe it's all about the stars and, uh, you know, I think sometimes when you're so in it and you have it, give it a name, uh, it constrains the possibilities and you as a creative person given gifts, right? Like all of us who studied this thing were, it somehow squeezes out the creativity that you were born with. Um, and I just think it's important to uh, try to find a place uh, uh, within, you know, unfortunately, construction industry, within the construction industry, which, which is really what it is mm. uh, for, for, for a lot of uh, projects, for that, um, uh, for creating those new perspectives and the, and the stepping outside of this religion, because it's, it's a, uh, we're not going to get anywhere, right? Because all we're doing is is the same rituals, <laughs> the same performance. Mm -hmm. um, and really, um, it doesn't evolve uh, society. It doesn't, it doesn't create, you know, uh, the dream will never happen. Whatever that thing that we hoped for, mm -hmm. um, that, that um, you know, when we have, when people make science fiction moves and present utopian futures about, you know, how, uh, we don't get there in the way we're going at the moment. We never get to those places. We get, we sort of just keep doing the same thing. We run out of resources eventually mm. and the, the species dies off. You know, 99.9% .9 of species on earth didn't make it, mm -hmm. right? We, we're this, this uh, uh, very young species that's about to kill ourselves. <laughs> uh, and we didn't even, you know, we didn't even fulfill our potential, which is mm -hmm. so limitless. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're making kind of uh, uh, we're so, so self-referential, you know. It's a it's a problem. It's easier, and it's it's but it but it doesn't get you off, you know. Doesn't get you off the planet, or it doesn't get you out of the religion. It doesn't get you kind of uh, to really see where you were. So I think that that's that's part of it. It's it's like um, to take a step back, take a breath, mm. and say, what do I really want to do with this? this creativity that I've yeah. got. This kind of thinking, which is 
highly speculative. It lends itself so well to the world of expositions where the structure is temporary, but the idea is persist. And in a way, it kind of sparks a sense of enchantment and optimism and enthusiasm for human potential across nations. And this is a world that you've been working a lot in, but more recently, the focus is shifting to permanent structure and in a way, a more um, familiar form of architecture. So we could talk about, for example, the Museum of London. This yeah. is a, in a way a major departure, it feels like, for the practice where you're engaging now in a large scale uh, architectural project, a renovation of an, an existing piece of architecture that will be permanent or at least will last much longer than these um, expo or exhibition um, or Olympic uh, pavilion structures might have. And I just wonder how you start to bring this planetary thinking, <laughs> this cosmic and atomic thinking, uh, this es expo thinking <laughs> into the production of permanent architecture. You're collaborating with Stanton Williams and Julian Harrop, as well as Jane L. Gibbons, joined as a friend of the show. She was on near the very beginning of this oh, project, I loved actually. Her. Yeah. Um, but in a way, the context feels much more a part of uh, the religion of architecture, or potentially could veer towards that. And so how do you stake out the speculative attitude that you were just describing? Uh, with the Museum of London, the the for me, the, the cosmic aspect of it is it's about time. Yeah, so it's about uh, how can a place exist that deals with um, a 100,000-year-old history, so pre-London, paleobotany, all of that stuff, um, to a place that's meant to spark our kind of... Um, uh, activism and interest in what, what the city of tomorrow is. Like L the Museum of London has to do all of those things, mm. right? Uh, it's an archive, it's also a sort of school in a way and, a, and an agitator and all of this. So um, uh, for me, it's perfect ground actually <laughs> for, for, for dealing with the stuff that I'm interested in. Mm. Um, and the fact that the, the kind of fourth or fifth collaborator in the process is Horace Jones, who's a, you know, an architect who, who uh, uh, died in the 1890s, but whose one of his final buildings was a, this Gen Smithfield General Market, um, which is in, it's an incredibly it's a, uh, um, it's a technical marvel of its day as a sort of machine for 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 for, for selling goods and for being a, a building that could cope with um, changing the changing market conditions of the day. Like it's a very adaptable building. Uh, um, it means that we've been able to, yeah, create interventions in surgical interventions, so on, which kind of uh, speak about our time, uh, this moment in time, but give give possibilities for the future, for future adaptation. It's so refreshing to be reminded of the inevitable redevelopment of projects that architects work on now, and I think it 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 just doesn't. It doesn't come up enough in the design process. I mean, I've worked a lot on estate regeneration schemes in the past where we as architects encounter the work of past architects 
and are intervening and, and inserting new buildings on um, council estates. But I think the conversation rarely um, steers toward what will architects in 50 years do with what we've done? <laughs> and how do, we, how do we help them do that, whatever it is they'll do? There's no real, I think, urge to consider the, the relative transience, I think, of That's the work it. we do as architects now, or the, the dialogue that the built environment could have with future generations. But let's be honest, all architecture is temporary. Right? And I think that's part of the, part of the uh, problem uh, or thing that's led us to so many, so many issues today is that we forget about that. The thing is constantly in transition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Stuart Brand, another book, How Buildings Learn, fantastic, uh, fantastic kind of uh, honest look at architecture and how each generation transforms it mm-hmm. um, and adds their own narrative and um, the process of uh, not just demolition, but demolition and reconstruction and historicization and, uh, and um, gentrification, appropriation, it's all, it's all happens, it's, it's, a, it's a living story. But all architecture is temporary, um, uh, which is, um, which I think is a, changes the way that you think about um, what you do um, and why you do it. Um, I think, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's um, uh, it's funny to think that some of the building materials that we are um, used to seeing in our in our uh, in the construction industry might only have ten years of life, um, and they're specified in buildings that the that that we imagine are, are going to be around forever. Um, so unless you're building them from you know stone that's twenty meters thick, you know the pyramids. Um, your building is going to go in 50 years to 100 years or 50 to even 20 to 50 years mm-hmm. and the changing needs of the city or the site, whatever, it might disappear sooner than that. I mean, it's interesting that I was intrigued by your social media handles, which are AsifCon now. <laughs> <laughs> like there's this real, um, I think, real attraction to the present moment too. And also this broad question, you mentioned... Jack Self is a friend or collaborator of yours about what it means to live today. This is a question that his magazine, Real Review, poses um, quite compellingly. And I mean, it's true. There's a real, I think maybe because of this um, awareness of um, deep time, deep historical time and distant future time in the process of design, it also hones one's attention as a designer on the present moment. And I think um, reinvigorates that question about what it is we're doing here. <laughs> yeah. What it means to be alive right now. I mean, we've got, we've got relatively short time on this earth as individuals. And, and um, uh, it's, it's not about legacy or something like that or the feeling that the feeling that um what what you do must stand for years it's rather that you that you've helped the next generation think about things differently or moved things on a bit for them so that they can do interesting things within their lives and so on and I, yeah given 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 the fact that the 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 the, the 
you know, th this very, very big ship with a million architects on board <laughs> is mo moves, moves us towards a certain horizon. Uh, it does feel like sort of the, the, the taking a moment, take a breath and, and, and pause and asking yourself, what should a project be? Uh, and uh, is really important because it does those small efforts reposition the ship, you know. A little bit of balance or ballast, the moving of ballast or whatever, it changes direction eventually. Um, As of, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>